This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. conversation with you. I'm very pleased as well. Thanks so much for coming, everyone. This is really, really lovely. What a lovely space and lovely city and lovely people. Yeah. Lovely interviewer. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I want everyone to notice that we are both wearing shoes in the yellow family. And uh, this was not prearranged before this evening. Can you give yourselves one more round of applause just for being here and being a wonderful audience? All right. Mari, I have a lot of questions for you. Great. I'm ready. This could be a three-hour event, but I'll try Perfect. to trim it down. Okay, great. <laughs> Let's do it. When did you start thinking of yourself as an artist? Mm. You know, sort of my, my mission statement is if you do art, you're an artist. You know, you don't need to have had training or yeah. anything. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but I think when I started, I would not have considered myself an artist. I don't think that I was making art. I think I was writing in my diary. <laughs> and I would not call that, I would call myself an artist now because what I make is, um, I have a creative process for it. I have um, some boundaries in place, selective vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, I have ways I go, to, go about it. Um, and that's not writing in my diary. So I think the first year of creating, I would not really have considered myself an artist. Um, it was a time when people could look at my Instagram and they knew exactly what was going on with me. It was in and real time? What was that? It was in real time? It was in real time, exactly. So if you saw that I was writing about a breakup, I was going through a breakup. And now when, I'm, when I write about something on the sadder side and I get texts from friends saying, are you okay? It's kind of, I feel almost like um, it's, it's art, you know? Like it's, it's a, um, a thing that I created that's, um, that's from memory or almost a character that I created more than um, my diary. So I think that I started considering myself an artist whenever that transition happened, whenever I stopped using it primarily to process mm -hmm. and more to explore um, this new identity that I had trained myself to be and that I had sort of grown into and created for myself. This leads me to a curveball question. Oh, my gosh. Which is, what is the difference between you in your published things and you as a human being? Because I draw myself as a character uh -huh. and sometimes my character reflects, because I use art as an emotional processing system, as you do, uh, the character of me is always a little more emo than sure. the yeah. me that somebody meets at a party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the character of me is more like a wounded child version of myself, mm. you know, mm -hmm. more than like the quippy person that you would meet on the bus or something. Uh -huh. So I wonder what is the difference 
And, or how do you keep those separate? Uh, well, my art has changed a lot. I, in the past year, I've tried to write a lot more, do less kind of comic-style drawings, and more um, just thoughts that, I'm, that I kind of want to get down in some way. And they might be thoughts that um, would be better suited in a fictional piece or, you know, in an in a essay that doesn't quite work for Instagram. But um, now it's more kind of a creative exercise and exploring what kind of art do I want to make? So I don't know if there's so much a character mm-hmm. as more of a, um, what I'm just interested in exploring at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't make money from Instagram. So that is a sketchbook. That's mm-hmm. whatever sounds fun to me in the moment and interesting and creatively challenging. Um, whereas what I do in my day-to-day life is a bit more professional and um, also not not usually something that would be interesting enough to write about. Your trajectory to where you are today as an artist and a writer is unconventional in the way where I know when you were a kid, you didn't necessarily want to be an artist or live that kind of life. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah, my dad was a guitarist, musician, and um, my mom was sort of the more responsible one. It was very Mrs. Doubtfire, that kind of dynamic. Um, my dad was sort of the epitome of this bohemian creative, and my mom was not. And I saw that she was um, the one with more structure, and she was the one making the money. And his life seemed a lot harder by comparison. So I didn't romanticize the creative life, but I was always creative. So there was a bit of tension there. I did want to be an artist, but I wanted to be a hundred thousand things. So I don't know if I would have singled out art as my driving motivation when I was a kid. But um, I, as, especially as I got a little older as a teenager, I thought I need to do something responsible. I need to um, make a life for myself that's totally independent and I need to um, do kind of the reliable thing, the responsible only child thing. And um, artist was not even anywhere near that <laughs> that idea for me. I didn't know how it could work. I, I sort of thought, I mean, I remember writing even when I was really young, like, I think I want to be a writer, but I know that writers don't make that much money. So I need to have a like a day job. And I, I had that for many years and it was great. I highly recommend it. But it's, um, yeah, that was, that was sort of the aspiration was uh, getting it together first. Well, I think it's so valuable to be transparent with people about the fact that you can have a job to support your art and that doesn't make you less of an artist. It has nothing to do yeah. with whether or not you're an artist or a good artist or anything. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to quit my day job. Um, I really liked having a day job. I liked having insurance. I miss it. <laughs> um, I, I, that was a great setup for me. I would um, do my nine to five and then go home and write and do creative things. And I really, really enjoyed that. And it was like this special thing only for me. There was no money attached. So there was a lot less pressure on it. Um, and that, I think that would have worked for me for the rest of my life, but I got too busy <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the creative stuff I was doing. So that was such a gift, of course, but not what I, not what I necessarily set out for. Which is wonderful for us because it just means that you're making more art. Thank you. Thank and more you. things that we can read and look at. I wonder if you feel 
brave as a person because you put out so many things, even if it's not in real time, you put out so many personal things and there are things that people attach to and grow from and connect with. Did it ever feel brave? Did it feel like a choice? What was the feeling when you first started putting those watercolors on Instagram? When I first started, nobody was reading it. So <laughs> that did not feel brave at all. Um, I mean, it was literally, it was private. It was a private account. So there, no one could. And until I had uh, some drawing sort of built up in my repertoire, that's when I shared it to my friends who already knew what was going on in my life. So that didn't feel brave. Um, as my following increased, um, it, it got a bit confusing about what to share and not. Um, I found that sometimes I'd share something quite tender and realize, oh, a stranger can have an opinion about this that they're going to share with me. Um, but it was every day learning a new sort of, I guess, boundary to put in place. I don't know. I've never been one to really set that many boundaries. I've always been pretty... Um, really open in general. So, you know, like the stranger on the bus knows as much as my friends do about, about my life. Um, but in sharing it in, um, in this very specific way on social media um, and through the, the way that I do, I realized, oh yeah, sometimes that, that kind of hurts. That's kind of, um, that's hard for me to deal with. Um, so I have I think there are times when I know, I know this is going to get opinions and I know that it's going to, um, that people are going to judge me for this. And that's when I feel brave. But most of the time I've been able to kind of figure out what, what I can share and what I, I shouldn't. When you have that feeling of being like, someone's going to have an opinion about this, it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. What is the motivator that helps you push through that? I mean, is it that you know that it's going to reach the right person who actually needs to see that sentiment? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, um, every day I have this little ritual that I do. I take a walk. I wake up. I, uh, I'm woken up by my cat, which is the nicest way to wake up in the world. And I take a walk. I try to get in a really good headspace. I come back home and I, um, I call it anointing my hands with oil with lavender oil oh. so like a, a little bit ridiculous but I do that and I um I ask for a couple things from whoever will give it to me I say help people feel valued in my presence today and I ask who can I serve and what do I have to give and um sometimes something will really come to me pretty strongly and that might be really hard to share for aforementioned reasons. But I think I usually have someone kind of specific in my mind, even someone I haven't met. And uh, that helps me think, okay, well, I hope it reaches you. <laughs> and uh, I am really grateful that other artists have done that for me and other writers and musicians and all creative people. How did you start this practice? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I came up with it. I don't know. Um, I, it's been sort of building over time. I have really good friends in my life who do these rituals. I'm not much of a routine person, but I love my rituals. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend Ruthie Lindsay, who you might be familiar with, she's wonderful. Um, she has this great thing. I do this too, where she like rubs oil on herself and she says, only that which is of 
loving service is allowed in and out of the shield. And I try to do that too, but sometimes I forget. Um, And so, yeah, these little rituals that I picked up from other people that just kind of help me stay grounded to why I'm doing what I do. And if it doesn't come back to that purpose of service, then it's not really worth it. Um, Speaking of service, (laughs) in my research, I found out that you almost went to seminary at a certain point. And uh, something that, I mean, we can, talk, we can talk about your illness a little bit later, but one thing I notice about you is that you have a lot of gratitude for a lot of the things in your life, and you seem to really enjoy service. And so I wonder, I don't know, how, how does it feel to have a spiritual life as a layperson? How do you take some of the things that you wanted from seminary and employ them in your life as an artist or a person? Beautiful question. It's a beautiful question. I mean, I think that's why I wanted to go to seminary. I've always felt a really, it's always been very easy for me to understand the relationship between the physical and spiritual. And by physical, I mean anything that you can see, touch, taste, smell. And by spiritual, I mean anything that you can't. And um, I think that I just have that gene. Like I've always had that. Um, And I've always been really interested in the sort of spiritual life. And I mean that in a very broad way. Um, I've had really beautiful experiences with religion that I think are extremely rare and have helped me um, tremendously. But I also um, am not committed um, to any one tradition. And I think it it felt so... um, it felt so right for me to do something like that, to sort of, I think, you know, religion, especially um, organized uh, religion, has inflicted a lot of wounds. And I felt like I was in the position to um, maybe heal some of those. And I was very young. I mean, I was completely naive and obviously very arrogant to think that I could do that. But um, it spoke to me. And I think through my art and my writing and my life, um, I am really interested in healing different wounds, mine and others, but I have to heal mine first. So I'm working on that right now and then I'll get to you guys. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that that really resonated with me. I thought I would be a, ho- a hospital chaplain. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and then it was just expensive. And I thought I'm never going to make as much money as, um, you know, would pay for my school. And that hasn't stopped me in the past from thinking about pursuing different paths. But I just thought I can maybe do this in a different way. And I sort of think, yeah, but like right now I'm communicating to a group. That's kind of what I wanted to do. And holding the hands of uh, people who are lonely. That's my greatest, um, like that's my greatest aspiration. So that's so kind. Oh, it is what it is. I, mean, I don't know. I think when you have like a calling, it's not like kind or not, it's just yeah. like what you want to do. Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, people would ask Joan Rivers, why are you a comedian? And she was like, well, you don't ask a nun why she's a nun. It's a calling. It's yeah, just what you do. I and love that. Yeah. I mentioned to someone yesterday that I felt like being an artist was like being a vampire. It's like you just are or you aren't. You just are afflicted totally. with it. Totally. And a litmus test for me is, you know, if somebody was like, here's a check for a trillion bazillion dollars, but as soon as you sign this check, you can never write another word or draw another picture, I wouldn't be able to do it. I would, yeah. I would self-destruct. Something would break inside of me and I would 
go crazy in a way that wasn't right. the normal way. Right. That I it's so synonymous went. to yeah. <laughs> personality. And yeah. Yeah. And so um, anyway, so it's interesting for me to actually think like, well, it is a call, there is a calling to your work and there is a purpose and kind of a mission statement, it feels like, to your work. Yeah, I've had to do. come up with one because, <laughs> I mean, it's you hard. Have? It's hard. So, and yeah, I mean, there are a lot of times I don't want to, like I said, like don't want to post certain things. And I wouldn't do it if I really felt like this is too much. I wouldn't do it. And yeah. I've stopped many times. And I, I'm sure like you, I make a lot of art just for me. Um, but I, I do recognize the sort of greater uh, mission involved, which I sort of have to follow or I would break apart. So. Yeah, that feels really valuable. I want to talk about when you started this account, when you started your watercolors, um, the moment of hardship for you, so that we can kind of talk about the relationship between grief and art and healing and kind of like winding back to how we got to where we are today. So can you talk about that time? Yeah, of course. 2015, 2016, 2015. We'll say it's 2015. Um, I had the... triple axle of shit, which was uh, dad's death, significant breakup, and um, some health issues that uh, kept me at home for a few weeks on my couch, unable to um, do much. And uh, what are you going to do during that time except, like, (laughs) become an artist, (laughs) you know? Um, What, like, how else are you going to function? And it was really, I mean, the kind of glorious thing is I think... um, For any of us who have experienced significant rock bottom hardship, it's a time when life just kind of like frays. Like you realize you had this sort of rug. (laughs) This is the first time I've ever thought of this metaphor. Let's go with it. There's a rug right here. here. There's a rug here. Perfect. And you get, there's all these societal messages and parent messages and friends comparison and all of that. And it's kind of like constructing this life that you sort of have for yourself, not to mention feelings of security, false security, feelings that things will kind of always be how they are. And then when the whole thing frays apart, I think you just, you can't help but look at life in such a different way and think, oh, I'm not too old to start. I was 28, which, um, I, I I think sounds so young. Um, but at the time I felt like I was decrepit like I was ready to just be tossed into the sea like I was just done with life um but I think in that time I realized well I've lost everything else why can't I just start doing something just start drawing for me it was um a combination of drawing writing um a few other things I'd always wanted to do dancing playing guitar taking um foreign language. I've never been this productive, so don't feel bad (laughs) about yourselves. Um, I just was in this like spurt of productivity because I had, I not only had to get myself out of this place, but I also was seeing life so differently. And I thought, man, I'm running out of time. I've lost everything. Um, I have no business drawing, but I've never, you know, done it before. But um, I want to, so I'm going to do it. And that's kind of the beauty of the rock bottom place. Like you just pick up your little chalk and you just start going for it. 
Yeah, I feel, when I hear about all those things, it makes me feel like you were saving your own life. Like you were doing what you could to make a life and fill up your time with things that could kind of fill. I feel like when you have that much loss, it feels like a vacuum sometimes. It's just like a gaping yeah. hole where all these things you loved once were. Or totally. things that you valued. And so you're just like, I gotta find something to put in here. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing is because I was 28, this very significant age, a lot of my friends were like, getting married. And a lot of my friends were getting really cool jobs. I was working at a boutique, which I thought was cool, but it wasn't really, you know, paying. The, it wasn't what I dreamt of doing. And, um, and all, all these friends of mine had these, like, things to report on Facebook. That was like, we were still using Facebook back then. But they all had, like, announcements to make, you know, like, I got a new job, like, my dream job. I'm marrying my dream guy, whatever. <laughs> and I didn't, I was like, my dad died, and I got rejected by this man I was obsessed with. And, um, you know, I didn't really have, so when I finally had a month's worth of drawings to put up on Facebook and say, look what I've been up to for the past month. That to me felt like, oh, here's what I can do. You know, I don't have the normal stuff. I don't have the things that I'm jealous of that I really want, but I have this little thing. Um, so I think that was also part of it in the saving of my own life, uh, my, 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 my life. Yeah, but um, but the the sort of like triumph of well, here's what I'm doing with my life. So yeah, <laughs> likes roll in, please. <laughs> and you, can we talk about your dad? Yeah, Is that okay. Yeah. So he was an artist. Yeah. And you were estranged at the time of his death. Yes. Which to me adds, as someone with challenging relationships with some of my closest family members that are supposed to be the people I celebrate on holidays. Uh, I know that that's a more complicated way to be with, to have a relationship with somebody when they pass away than just if you were like, you know, talking on the phone all the time in a wonderful place. Yeah. So how did that feel? What? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the right really thing. That's a good to question. Well, I really doubted my own experience with grief because I thought, am I allowed to be this messed up over this? It really, I knew he was going to die and it was a billion times harder than I could have ever anticipated. And I, I if, if you've ever lost a loved one, um, often the first thing that people will ask, especially if they don't know you very well, is, were you close? And... Um, I always had to say no. And then I think that sort of gave them the permission to like not ask anything else. Like, okay, well, you're fine. Um, but the way that I've thought about it, because I actually read, and I don't know if this is true, psychologists in the room, but, um, but the experience of losing someone you're estranged from is as powerful as losing someone you are super close to. Because um, that, that uh, quote, grief is uh, love with nowhere to go, is sort of like, it's like the bizarro version. It's like grief is like all this resentment and longing and confusion and like kind of obsessing over this person all the time with nowhere to go. It's, um, it's like, as, like that's a, as powerful of a feeling as love, I think. Um, plus love, you know, yeah. plus of course, you know, love. And so when that ends and it's just like, oh, that's the end of the story, especially because we never had any reconciliation or anything. Um, I just found it to be the most lonely thing. And, um, 
I think that was probably the hardest part was the loneliness. I just had no one, I didn't know what stories to read or, and that's when I thought I have to write my book because I'd never heard anyone talk about it. I was so grateful. Um, Sufjan Stevens' album came out around that time and uh, he would, I mean, that was like, it's like a life raft. It was so amazing to have that story told in a way that like resonated so very deeply for me. Yeah. And so it's nice to hear that you took that loneliness and you kind of paid it forward. And now you want your work to comfort people that are lonely. Did it comfort you? Because it seems like your vulnerability was able to build a bridge between so many people. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, yeah, I thought of myself as like on this little island and the only way that I could get to other people was to like make art and write. And whenever people, especially in the very early stages when people would tell me, uh, this makes me feel less alone, it would make me feel less alone. So it's like this beautiful relationship. And I just never, I've never thought of myself as a particularly relatable person. In fact, quite the opposite. I, I didn't really have friends until I was about 20. And um, now I have good friends, don't worry. But um, I, I was very lonely most of my life and felt very, very always the the outcast. Um, so yeah, I didn't think that I was like relatable at all, at all. Um, and so to hear like, you know, someone from like a, teen, a cool teen from Indonesia saying like, oh, I, you know, this makes me feel less alone. It's like, oh my gosh, popular with the, you know, like Indonesian teens. And that was just such a like amazing experience and very connective, of course, the way that any art it can be the way that you can also have if you make art. So wonderful. Well, okay. So the so the dad thing happened. By the way, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry about the loss of your dad. Did I know all. it's weird to say into a microphone on stage, but I feel like since we're talking about it, I can't just be like, okay, next question. You know, it's, <laughs> thank you. It feels inappropriate. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but after the dad thing happened, and after you're traveling through this grief, you're having this moment of intense grief, you're building a bridge by making this art, then you get a book deal and you're like, I'm going to go to Spain and finish my book. <laughs> YOLO. And then, can you tell us what happened next? Yeah. I was loving life. I had like the best month of my life. I decided to go to Spain to write my book. Um, I wanted, I was leaving my office job for the life of a writer and artist. Um, so I googled most bohemian city in the world and I landed on Granada, Spain, which is an incredible place and very bohemian. And I was taking dance classes and drinking lots of wine and it was so much fun. Um, and I ended up getting an autoimmune disease there that totally ruined my trip. Um, I was in the hospital for a month uh, with a disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is um, it attacks your nerves from your hands and feet and then works its way inward. So my first symptoms were sort of a foot heaviness. Um, and and I, yeah, it was, it was a real bummer. I always knew that it was going to get better. So that wasn't I, – I never thought, oh, I'm just paralyzed for the rest of my life, which obviously would have been – uh, I mean, I can't imagine. I think about it a lot. And a really different story. Be a really different story. Yeah, 
yeah, but um, I ended up uh, re- starting to recover after about a month and um, went home to the U.S. and continued my recovery there. And what was surprising to me, probably unsurprising to anyone who's ever dealt with serious or not serious illness, is the recovery was significantly harder than actually having the active disease. Um, the sort of re-entry into life was to normal life or my life before was um, extremely challenging. I dealt with very severe depression and um, I guess PTSD to some extent. And um, it was, I feel like that's as close to death as I ever was, was um, the recovery. It was really, really hard. But it totally changed the trajectory of my art and um, sort of my my mission in a lot of ways. So, <laughs> you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. No, <laughs> how, how did it change the trajectory of your art? Because I, I didn't want to make it. And I didn't, um, I didn't know what to talk about because t- I, up until that moment, I was sort of... I mean, I was processing my life, but I think I had sort of a levity, even through all the grief and everything. Um, I was talking a lot about dating, and I was talking a lot about, like, my budgeting disasters. And these kind of, I got kind of into this groove of, um, I think it was very much in the zeitgeist at the time, this sort of, like, millennial, relatable humor that I didn't set out to um, <laughs> to make, but I think I kind of got in that habit, and it's the way that my brain would think. Like I would I would think in terms of these little comics, and then after uh, I got sick, I was in my mom's house in the suburbs, um, not interacting with anyone, certainly not dating, breaking up with my boyfriend, uh, feeling completely miserable, feeling really ugly in a very deep way. And um, I didn't want to make any of that stuff. And I couldn't. I was doing freelance at the time. And like, I just couldn't even look at my art. It was like, I couldn't stand it. Um, And so I thought, okay, I already used art to save me once. I can do it again, but it's going to look different. So I started making art about what I was actually going through. So I guess it was sort of back to the diary entries in in a way. Um, and I thought, I think I'm going to lose like a ton of followers, which will be a bummer for my book publisher, but I don't care. I have to make the stuff I have to make. And, um, it was actually a very transformative experience to talk about those things and, um, to connect with people I would have never connected with otherwise. And, um, I think I, um, that's when my own healing began and, uh, which I'm still very much on and, um, and I think through that, I was, my art became much more of a healing exercise than just sort of a creative experiment. And uh, so that was a really special experience in hindsight. At the time, of course, it didn't feel like that, but it kind of did. I mean, being able to connect with people while I was lying in my bed feeling miserable um, was obviously a really powerful experience. Yeah. While you were, I don't know if it was while you were in the hospital or when you were recovering, um, I heard you say on a podcast that you had a friend, was it an energy healer friend? That, <laughs> yeah. Did they call you or they came over? Will you tell me about She emailed that? me. Yeah. The tarot, she was a tarot reader. A tarot reader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, who, who told me um, 
I mean, this is very, like, this is real vulnerable stuff. Um, she emailed me this beautiful email, and she said, this is your transition from artist to healer. And I, I'm still waiting for that, but I, I thought that was the most beautiful way to think about, um, you know, recovery. And uh, I'm, I'm doing my own heal, emotional healing uh, journey right now, and I'm thinking a lot about that and what it means to actually sort of be a healer. And only healed people can heal people. So um, I know that I need to... Um, that that is part of my life's work is to um, keep healing myself. And that was just a really lovely perspective that um, I was very grateful for to come into my inbox from fantastic tarot reader, Lindsay Mack. She has a good podcast. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. What's the podcast called? (laughs) Um, All right. We're really cruising through these questions. I have to let you know. I want to go back to my gratitude thought, which is you have such an attitude of gratitude, if if I may. And I wonder if you had it like this and this kind of zest for life before your health took a dive or if this was a result of that. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, For a while, I was like insistent when I was in my recovery period. I was like, I am not going to be grateful. I'm not going to be more grateful for life. Like, I'm not going to learn any life lessons. I was so insistent that like, this is just shitty. This is not like, there's no, there's no bonus for this. And to this day, like, um, I... I get sort of flinchy um, when I hear, especially illness, talked about that way. You know, like, oh, I'm just so grateful that I can do such and such again. Um, I think a lot of that is sort of like speaks to a kind of ableist society that, you know, it's like your, your happiness is sort of contingent on being able to do things again. And I, um, I mean, one thing that was very profound um, during my paralysis was realizing my worth was very much not attached to things that I could do at all. Um, so when I got better, I think there was a big expectation, as there is for a lot of people who are... Um, whose ability uh, changes um, for the kind of better in society's uh, perspective, that I would be like just buzzing around being grateful all the time. And I just wasn't. And in fact, I was really angry. I was like more angry than I've ever been. I was angry that I had to deal with it. I was angry that society isn't set up for people with disabilities. I was angry that I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I was angry for people I knew who were still in the hospital and um, had this really massive survivor's guilt. So I had had a bad attitude. I did not have an attitude of gratitude. I had an attitude of... Baditude. Baditude, for sure. And now, you know, it's been a couple years, and I'm grateful that... I can write. I think that's the biggest thing. I remember the first day that I could journal, which is really essential to my daily life. Um, just journal entries, not not drawing for Instagram, but just um, like processing my thoughts through writing. The first time I could do that, because my, um, my hands were unable to 
right for a long time. Um, I felt like one of those YouTube videos of like a like a cow who's like released into the pasture and can and it's like oh my gosh, it's just so happy to be a cow. You know, like it's just doing the cow things that it like, it's just prancing around. And I felt like this is what I should be doing. Like this is what Amari does, you know, like the way we were talking about, it's so intrinsic to your personality. So when you don't have that for a while and you almost don't even realize what exactly is missing. And then when I could journal, it was like, I just felt like I was on fire in the best way. It was just this beautiful kind of return to myself, but a very different self than I'd ever known before. And I was just so excited to process it. So that, yes. But I think that I've always been really good at appreciating things. And um, so, I, and I think that that is gratitude, you know, being yeah. able to look around and appreciate something. That's something that I try to do a lot when I'm in an attitude of gratitude is think, what's what's something I can appreciate here? And I think that I've always been able to do that. Where did that come from? Just like from one time you were a child? Yeah. Like, Bless this mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, kind of. I mean, I was a very morose child, a very, like, sad child. But it was more like, it wasn't so much, it wasn't like a happy, it wasn't happiness <laughs> that, like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't connect gratitude to sort of a feeling of necessarily joy as much as just a feeling of appreciation. So I think that I've always been really observant. And so I could always find something to look at or I would look for something um, that either delighted me or that I could make fun of. I used to love like gossiping with my mom in a restaurant, like oh looking at, you know, all the like couples and trying to figure out what was going on. And so even if it wasn't like, oh, I love this flower, you know, it's like, oh, look at her outfit or, you know, in a good or bad way. And just finding things to sort of delight and inspire and like put a pep in my step. I think that's always been a part of um, my life for whatever reason. It seems like a, a way of being very present in your environment and present in your own life is observing. That's Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's nice. But something I'm trying to do, a new thing I'm trying to do is to notice one new thing on every commute that I do. So like dri- driving from my apartment to my art studio, you know, it's, since it's the same route I've traveled so many times, I try to find one new thing that I've never noticed before. I try to notice one new thing along that route. That's great. I love that. Thanks. Well, it's it's hard, you know, being in like an Instagram kind of generation or time and zone of being like, what are my friends posting? What's happening? What else is happening? What's the news? What's this? What's that? It's easy to not be present in anything that I'm doing and just have my face like stuck to my phone. Yeah. So (laughs) anything I can do, writing a gratitude list, noticing what's around me, appreciating the people around me. Yeah. Is so valuable. And I think that's probably why I clocked it and you were, I was like, she is so, she is so full of gratitude. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It just, it does change your brain chemistry, I think, to like sit down and be like, what am I actually grateful for in this life? And also to try to be grateful for things you didn't ask for. Because, you know, for me, sometimes it's like, dear Santa, you know, (laughs) dear Santa, I got a book contract. But instead, sometimes I wanted to be like, you know what? I live indoors in this house. The sun is shining today. That squirrel is looking at me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't mean to bring it back to like religion, but one of the, it was either St. Francis or St. Augustine who said like, 
time, like the present is already the past because it's, time is moving, but the present of present is appreciation. So when appreciation is, um, that's when you, that's the only time you can be like fully present and time sort of stops. And I think about that a lot. So yeah, scrolling and then taking a time to actually like put down a gratitude, a little um, nugget I think is um, essential. Wonderful. I just, I really, it's such a nice practice. Okay. I have a question for you that might be overarching and it might include some of the things we've already discussed, but in your opinion, what makes a good life or what's important to you in your life? Um, well, I think a lot, I think a lot about what makes me enjoy my life these days because mm-hmm. um, I'm in kind of an interesting time of life that I'm very grateful for, um, where a lot of things I've always wanted to do have happened, or things I didn't even expect to ever do have happened. And I'm, I see a lot of, you know, old friends or acquaintances or um, just people I don't know very well who say, like, you must be so happy, or uh, congratulations on all your success. And it's of course, I'm, I'm very happy to receive those thoughts, but it feels very disingenuous because that's not really what makes me happy. And um, I think like any life, this isn't specific to me, the things that make me happy are the things you don't see. <laughs> like, um, I, I think these days what makes me happiest is my friendships. And you can see that I have friends, but you don't see the connection we have. You don't see the way that I think about them. You don't see how like my stomach flips when I get a text from certain friends because I love them so much. Um, So there's that. Uh, Relationships are first the thing that makes me most happy. And so if someone were to say congratulations on the success of your friendships, that would feel more genuine to me. You know, I would, I would, it's the thing I'm most proud of. Um, or like living in New York has been, um, I, that I guess is something that I've always wanted to do. So that's a dream come true. And that I think that um, does feel like a success to me in a lot of ways. But the little things that make me really happy are probably invisible, you know. And so it's not like follower count. <laughs> and it's not even like getting a book deal. I liked writing the book, but it's not, it doesn't bring me joy to just have like books in the world the way that it did when I was writing or when I meet people who have read it. You know, like those connections make me really happy. Um, So I think what makes a good life is um, kind of figuring out your own metric of success and working toward that. And it's usually the things that um, you can't see or touch. And uh, that's my philosophy. But you know what? If things... if followers make you happy like great awesome it's that's really good to know about yourself but that's not I think that's what is assumed you know like brings me joy and it doesn't I don't even uh I I I keep a lot of boundaries uh on Instagram so I I don't even know how many I have and that's I think that's a very good space for me to be in sounds healthy you know what I need to get through (laughs) by the way congratulations on your friendships 
Thanks, Nicole. You're welcome. Gosh, that means so much to me. Thank you so much. I feel that way too, though. You know, and also I feel like as somebody with kind of a fractured family of origin, mm-hmm. having longtime friendships with people who we've all been through ups and downs and then we've learned to work through them, that kind of chosen family feels like gold to me. And it's so valuable and important. Having those people reflect back to me my growth and change. Because knowing people from the time you're 22 to time you're like 38, is that's a lot of growth. That's a lot of change. And having those people say like, I see you. I see what's happened. We're still here. I'm so happy about your life. And our friendship has grown and deepened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That feels yeah. better to me than like, you got a lot of likes on that post. Congrats. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have travel tips for us that you can tell us? Because you travel a lot. Yes. You travel internationally. You travel domestically. (laughs) Yeah. I travel from my living room to my kitchen. From your living room to your kitchen? Perhaps you find new things to appreciate on that commute from your living room to your kitchen? Yep. Dividing my time between those two places. Just a fun question. Yeah. Travel tips. Oh, I love a fun question. Um... Well, yeah, I do. So this year I've traveled a lot for work, which is a different kind of travel uh, than I was doing before, where I would save up every penny that I was making from my like 3,000 jobs to to go on like one big like four-day trip a year. That was so exciting. Now I have the luxury I get to travel a lot for work, but it feels different. And um. I just know myself to be a very, like, aesthetically, um, like, inclined person. So I'm going to need happy luggage. And I'm going to need a good airplane outfit. And I'm going to need really good snacks. I'm going to need to put my little moisturizer in my jar so I can put it on during the flight. And I'm going to need really good TV shows for my flight. So I just downloaded a bunch of episodes of Golden Girls for my flight tomorrow. Mm, um, what season? Three. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm a Sophia. Oh, I'm a, a... Oh, my gosh, Dorothy. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's a great combo. <laughs> I was going to say Blanche, and I thought, no, I wish. In my dreams. Um, Knock on wood. Yeah, getting there, getting there. It's 10 years. Um, yeah, so that's a tip. Make it, you know, like do the things that you want to do. You don't have to make it so awful. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. What's your airplane outfit? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I just came up with it. I actually ordered one because I saw all these, you know, those like Scandinavian people who walk around the airport in like black leggings, black tennis shoes, big scarf, and like cool black chic like fitted jacket I always wanted to be them so I bought that outfit and then I thought this isn't me it's just not working it's not sparking joy and so I went back to the drawing board and so now I have my kind of ridiculous like um linen pants and I have fuzzy Birkenstocks and um a like long sleeve shirt, and then this giant, like gigantic scarf, but not the cool Scandinavian, just this unnecessarily large sort of blanket thing that I just cover myself in, and like a really fun tote. And that to me feels like funky and fun, and I feel adventurous and cool and carefree, and that makes me very happy. So those are my travel tips. Also, go alone, sit at the bar alone. You're not going to die. Just do it and um, see what happens. Put away your phone, you know. 
Ooh. Do you talk to people on the plane? No. No, that's like my worst, <laughs> what that's you, my worst nightmare. What's your answer if someone says, what do you do for a living? Oh, God. I, mm, I usually say I'm like a freelance artist, but then that's yeah, like yeah, yeah. too much. Yeah. One of my friends is a therapist, and we decided that she should you say clerical. Or you say, oh, uh, gotta, uh, yeah, like some, yeah. Data entry. Just something that totally. there's no follow-up question. There's no follow-up. Oh, just clerical. I don't know. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Funeral director. Yeah. But uh, to, no, then you'll get, yeah, you guys, <laughs> like, I can't, I'm terrible at this. Yeah. <laughs> has to be a dead end. It has <laughs> to be a dead end. Totally. <laughs> and kind of vague, so they can't really relate. They can't, yeah, they can't. There's no in. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, like, my nephew is, you know. <laughs> Those are good travel tips, though. Thanks. Thank you. Um, is there a question that you wish people would ask you about your work that they often don't? Oh, that's a really sweet question. That's probably it. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> or about your story. No, I, not in particular. I mean, I think um, anyone sort of likes being asked about the things that make them light up. And um, so I like talking about, you know, like what it feels like when I'm making my work or sort of what the ambiance is like um, because I could talk about that for a long time. And I'll give you a very short answer that it's... um, (laughs) that it's it's really my favorite time of day. It's such a really lovely ritual that I still have to kind of um, work through some thoughts that have been kind of rolling around like marbles in my brain all day. And it's, um, it's funny because the work that I make for Instagram is obviously very public. Art is public by definition. Um, but that's the most personal and intimate time that I really have with anything. I'm not dating anyone. So. <laughs> um, I, it's such a, like, sensual time. And I'm always, uh, almost always drinking, uh, usually wine, sometimes tea, but usually wine. And um, I'm at my little... Um, I wish I had a photo because it's it's really precious. I have this little um, coffee table and I have all my little knickknacks and my candles. And I have a new cat who's very old and she sits next to me. And, um, and it's this time when I'm listening to my favorite music and I'm doing my favorite activity. And that makes me um, really happy, you know more than anything that sort of comes along with it. So if you guys don't have something like that, um, I would highly recommend it. Find find that thing um, that you so look forward to doing all day. Do you have any advice for young artists or people who would like to do what you do? Hmm. <laughs> um, I I came to it in such a roundabout way that I don't feel like. Um, like I can tell, a, a young artist has more experience than I do at this point. Um, but I can say that the world wants 
and probably needs your very specific voice. I think for a long time in my 20s when I wanted to be a writer, I was always trying to catch the sort of trend of what was going on with writers. So this was a time when like Refinery29 and um, like those uh, like feminine, quirky lifestyle websites were really popping off. And I thought that that's what I should do. And so I tried to kind of change my voice and talk about certain things in a kind of snarky and quirky way. And I think I could have done that and I could have done it forever. You know, I could have, but it wouldn't be anything like what I'm doing now. It wouldn't be that like intimate moment at the coffee table for sure. Um, It would just be me trying to kind of channel someone else's voice, probably in a sort of watered-down way. Um, And so I would say um, commit to learning what you want to say and how you say it. Um, I always thought, like, I don't know how to use um, Adobe products. Don't tell Adobe I'm speaking (laughs) at their conference next month. Um, But... (laughs) Like, I don't know how to make that stuff, do that stuff, whatever you do with Adobe. And I thought that you had to. I thought I can't be an illustrator if I don't know how to use Illustrator. You know, or like, I don't know how to draw people. So how can I do this? Um, But I figured it out in my own way. And that's what is most appealing to people. People can tell, you know, when you're doing something that only you can do. So that would be my greatest advice. Can you tell us about the book that you're working on right now? That I yeah. think that you maybe just finished. Just finished. Congratulations yeah, thank on you finishing so much. it. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> That's a big deal. Thanks, guys. That feels so good. I, I finished it all alone up in upstate New York, so I didn't have like a round of applause. <laughs> that feels really nice. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was such a joy to write. I don't have a good way to talk about it because it was just what I felt like writing. <laughs> it's just stories that I felt like writing about. So I don't know what the cohesive um, narrative is yet. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to market it. It's just kind of what, it's a lot of um, stories from the past couple years of my life. So a really significant breakup that I wanted to talk about. Um, It was, uh, again, uh, something I had never seen written about before. It was a three-week romantic adventure, and it was the worst heartache I've ever had in my life. And I never... I read about like a very short thing ending that was as traumatic as that was. So I wrote about that and I wrote about my illness in different ways than I ever have and um, friendship, making friends uh, as an adult and just some things that have been on my mind and things that people have been asking me about. Um, And it was so much fun. And uh, so that'll come out in like a very long time. So 2027. Yeah, 2027. Yeah, exactly. Mark your calendar. So yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's now it's being edited, but um, yeah, it was really a joy to write. So thanks for your pre-support. No problem. That's <laughs> very nice. Thank you, Mari. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.